and welcome to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. Podcast number 13. With me tonight, as always, Mac. Hey, how you doing tonight? And not to mention, Ian. <laughs> you aren't supposed to mention Oh, I'm not supposed to mention not, him? Oh, the we'll unmentionable go. now? Yeah, the, the unmentionable. The unmentionable. So how are you guys doing tonight? Well, I'm feeling much better than I was earlier this week. I threw my back out putting a $5 bill into a coin changer for laundry. I'm sorry. You threw, you, threw your, you threw your back out putting the <laughs> bill in? I can't believe it. <laughs> it's just at the wrong angle. Apparently, I was due. Popped my back out. Saw my chiropractor today. I'm walking at a much more upright angle again. Mm-hmm. All That's right. good. Well, he's not so much a chiropractor today as an evolutionary assistant. Oh, is that what he was? <laughs> yep. I, I killed my back camping. Did Ow. you? How was your camping trip? I, I can no longer sleep on the ground like I did when I was about 20 years younger. Sure. Well, I got a new job. Yeah, and we are very happy. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good. It's, it's working out good. So Very beneficial in a lot of ways. Yeah, it has been. Yep. All right, so uh, what is our first story this evening? What well, do we got actually, here? before we get to that, I'm doing an evolutionary experiment. I wanted to go ahead and bring you guys in on. Um, I have got bit by a whole bunch of mosquitoes the last couple of weeks, and I'm going to start taking mosquito repellent with me. So any mosquito that tries to bite me, I'm going to spray him with the repellent or spray her with the repellent. I just want to make sure that these mosquitoes can't get dates. I'm breeding out the tendency to attack me out of the species. Um, and I invite yeah, you to I, I, on this adventure. You know, yeah, I got eaten up pretty good at camp, so they seem more aggressive this year than they have in the past. I think that you need to do this at the molecular level. I, I, it's not good enough to just spray them. You need to actually, you, you need to swap out some genes is what you need to do. No, I, I think I just want to kill the behavior. No, no, <laughs> I, I think you need to do that by swapping out the genes. You need to identify the genes that created the behavior in the first place and, and, and remove them. And that'll pretty much wipe out the species. Yeah, and I'm going to end up with a 500-pound black and white mosquito that's tearing, tearing wild like like everything, right? Well, <laughs> just make sure you train him properly. You knew I had to put an ancestor reference in here tonight. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I've listened to the first ancestor, you know, but I have not. Uh, yeah. So that we're talking about, of course, Scott Ziegler, who was in town a couple of weeks ago. Did we talk about that on the last podcast? I think, no, we, mentioned, think, so. I think we might have mentioned going to see him. Yeah, well, so he uh, he's great in person. If you haven't ever gone to one of his readings, he is absolutely great in person. And his books are great in general, so. Yeah, no, I like him. You know, when you see me on Sunday, I doubt all the mosquito bites on my face will have healed by then. They really went after my face. I have no idea why. Well, did you okay. get pictures the last, put them on the Last site? couple years at scout camp, no problem. But this year, they just, boom. I tried something traditional on my mosquito bites, and I'll bring some over for you to try out, Ian. Um, okay. Meat tenderizer, papaya enzyme, is supposed to break down the proteins in the... Okay, it breaks okay. down all kinds of insect venom, but it breaks down the proteins the mosquito bite that cause the swelling. Show me the clinical data. Should, show me the clinical data. Don't just sit there and say it. Uh, this is a science <laughs> podcast. Actually, you show me. I should remember uh, as a kid that being um, recommended for um, beasting. Yeah, I've heard I've heard all these wives' tales. Show me the data. Okay. <laughs> Okay, let's get going. All people. right. Yeah, we're, we're we're done with the griping at each other part of the show and, and <laughs> counting our and stripping our sleeves and showing our scars. <laughs> show me the data. All right. So, uh, fat caused by virus. Yeah, this you know intestinal scientific thing actually the kind of thing I, I see and I I think of Mac right off the bat because this um because within it they talk about um utilizing this as a possible way to deal with um diabetes. 
And basically what it is is it's a virus that apparently linked to fat production. Okay. But is not is, is this I mean what, what kind of data do they got here I mean is there is there is there a clinical study to back this up or, I mean what, um, where did this like come from it, it seemed like it's a very early on okay so there's thing. really nothing here it, it not hasn't yet. it hasn't gone through peer review or anything right it, it's just okay. one of those interesting okay. things that you look at, at possibility okay sure you know, well, that's an interesting idea no matter what um saying basically saying that they're studying the human adenovirus number thirty six they believe that it's infecting stem cells in our body or in our fat tissue. And it turns those cells that it infects into fat. Right. Okay. And, you know, if this actually goes somewhere, it would, uh, you know, definitely affect the way we can metabolize things, you know, if they can really narrow it down and figure out how to work with it. See, but it sounds but like this virus could actually metabolize, help people who are who are uh, low on insulin. Uh, yeah, well, that's what they yeah, specifically what they talked about saying. in the article, is the possibility of the link to di working with people with diabetes by using it. That's interesting. But here's the thing. is that I don't know. I, I hate these articles because the, the, this is probably not even being tested on mice yet. But yet, here here's this preliminary research that, that they're putting out there like like there's something to it. I mean, has has this been done on mice? I, I, Will the virus um, affect mice? Well, exactly. Well, I mean, yeah. and, and it's is a, it... It's a human adenovirus, which means it may not actually be able to jump across species. Yeah. And, Brian, there's a level where they want to get the word out. They want to get people interested because if they don't have people interested, it'll be hard to get funds for the research. So yeah, but here's my, my problem is so these I, things end up running into pseudosciences. Now we're going to have right. somebody come out and say that they have the cure for this virus and they're, they're going to make everybody thin. You know, I mean, Kevin Trudeau, you know, will capitalize on this. Well, that's, that's what concerns me about some of this stuff. Right. But there's a level where they want to kind of get some of this early stuff out in hopes of getting some extra funding to see what, you know, because they have to get funding to go anywhere with this stuff. And the more they get the public to be, oh, hey, that's something I'm interested in, the easier it is for them to get funding. If there's so there's a lot yeah, of that's true. If there's something to this, it would be nice because my wife is heavily insulin dependent. She's type 1 diabetic. And yes, I caught my diabetes from her. It's contagious. <laughs> um, but no, she's, she's heavily insulin, insulin dependent because her type of diabetes is that her immune system is basically making her insulin resistant to her own insulin and damaging her pancreas as it goes along. Okay. So. It's just, my, my fear is, you know, and what, what I, the one I can think of off, off hand is antioxidants. The, the, the research right. is still not complete on this, and actually we're finding that, that the initial thoughts on this, I think it was from, you know, because they had noticed that people who drank red wine a glass a day had less heart problems, and, they, and, and somebody decided it was the antioxidants, and now everything in the store wants to tell me how good antioxidants are, but yet now we're finding that certain antioxidants can produce cancer growth. So, so, and it's because of the preliminary research like this that the public took and skewed. So that's what concerns me about some of this kind of stuff is how is somebody going to capitalize on it that that before it's completed? Yeah, right. we're going to see products that we're going to see products that help block the fat virus. Exactly. But, you know, if there is something to this, and if the study goes somewhere and it discovers something, it would be nice. It's just. Hopefully, we won't get a bunch of people jumping on the bandwagon saying, you know, use my product to block the, block the fat virus with a cyber. Yeah, well, because we see, the, we see that all the time, you know, on like if you listen to radio, like on Sunday mornings, on a lot of these stations, they have those, you know, paid commercial types of things. And usually they're just chock full of pseudoscience, BS, somebody trying to sell a product. 
you know, they want to sell you bee pollen or they or you know, or something, all these things, you know, and the, and they're telling you like the bee pollen especially is one that irritates me because it's they're, it, they're saying that it's going to help to help people that have, um, um, you know, allergic reactions to, to this stuff that, you know, they can build up some immunity with this stuff. When the fact of the matter is, is that if, if the pollen is in there, they're going to have a, an allergic reaction. Mm-hmm. So it just, it just, it concerns me when you see preliminary research like this, particularly in an article this vague. Right. Well, th- yeah, I knew the article was vague, but it had just enough interest. And once more, that's what I'm saying. The the community that is doing these experiments wants just enough interest to get the extra funding. They're going to leave it vague because they don't have the answers. Which, but but they don't point that yeah. out. They didn't. They don't say that. They they. I mean, this it's vague, and it doesn't say this is still in testing. We don't have anything conclusive. But if you read it, they really don't. There's nothing. I don't. Know. Right. It is interesting. I, I'm it, saying it isn't hopeful, interesting. But it is hopeful. It's, it's interesting. It's hopeful. But it's sometimes when articles like these that are so vague and 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 they didn't really ask any critical questions you know they didn't ask the the questions that i think a scientific um you know a journalist might ask it doesn't it just doesn't seem like it was vetted very well um it, and it is interesting but it would be better if they would if you know if they would point out you know this is preliminary and some stuff like that and if it's right. not they, they should address that too agreed all right so let's find the oldest living animal and kill it this sounds like a good idea somebody already did that oh there's got to be another. Um, well, there's probably a new oldest living animal. But uh, basically, what uh, what was going on here is that they found a team from Bangor University in Wales was dredging the waters north of Iceland as part of a routine research when they pulled up a specimen of clam, which after they cut through the shell, which did, in fact, kill the clam, they found out that the clam was actually between 405 and 410 years old. So... That was the oldest specimen ever found. They learned a lot from the clam, but they were talking about the fact that this particular aspect of science was not particularly beneficial for the individual animal. <laughs> no, it was not. No, they okay, but they try and couch it. You know, it's like okay, we, we know that we did a bad thing here, but we're going to try and learn lots from it. We're going to get lots of good right. data out of this, and yeah. uh, and you know, well, and there was really no way to know what they were what they were uh, what they were doing at the time that they did it. They were there was no way to know that this clam was as venerable as it was. Yeah, no, right. I yeah, and the, the, these kinds of things are tough because you really don't know. You're doing research, and sometimes you you you, you do whatever it is, and you you find out you made a mistake. Right. And there's and there's nothing. I mean, they wouldn't have known that they were, you know if they hadn't done it. They would, we never would have known it was the oldest living animal. Yeah, to be oh, discovered. To be discovered. Yeah. And you know this particular clam clam had been complaining that his grand clams never visited anyway. <laughs> well, at the age of chat, my gr- guess is it's a few more generations past grand. Well, now here's it, an interesting question: At what point does it stop spawning, or whatever clams do? And we talked about that immortal uh, immortal jellyfish on uh, a couple of episodes ago, and it, we don't have any way of knowing how old that can become or how old they are because they just flip back into a polyp right. and start all over again. Yeah, so, yeah. But, so, no, to go with this story, I, I put in here some uh, information on the Prometheus tree. Have you guys heard about the Prometheus tree? We discussed it. Yeah, but... we, yeah. So this was the oldest living tree uh the oldest living tree, and not only was it the oldest living tree, it was the oldest living known or you know organism. And uh, it was. It says here on Wikipedia that I've seen several different ages, varying from you know 4,862 all the way up to 5,000. I saw one that said it was 49,000, but it was thousands of years old. This tree. 
And I, I actually heard about this on, um, um, it's an NPR podcast I'm called Radio Labs, and uh, they were actually doing a whole series on oopses. And mm-hmm. uh, and so the you know the guy had had some sort of tool from Sweden was what they said and it broke in the tree and he went and talked to the park ranger and um, the park ranger, well said well, you know it, I mean there were so many trees I guess that he felt like they cut it down and you know so that the guy could complete his re- so they did they found out that this really old tree now but since I did that I'm um, reading a couple of different articles apparently there's a couple of different stories going around as exactly how this happened it seemed like the details might be a little. But regardless, uh, one of the stories is that he actually broke two tools off, um, which and another story implies that a core sample was too difficult to obtain. And so therefore wouldn't have provided the definitive information anyway. So but it's it's interesting and it's really a little sad, but it is, you know, but these things happen. I mean, clearly, I mean, we, we've presented two stories where we're the same kind of thing. Right. So, yeah. So it can happen. Unfortunately, now, th- now this researcher, uh, you know, my understanding is he got out of this and decided to do something else after this. He was a grad student at the time, uh, Donald R. Curry. He's probably real big on supporting Arbor Day, Arbor Day now, and he plants trees. Yeah, apparently people occasionally come up to him. Hey, aren't you guy, the guy who chopped down the oldest tree in the world? Uh. Do they say what happened to the wood from it? No, I haven't, I, I haven't heard anything about that. Mm. So that no, it was, a, it was pine. It wasn't a hardwood. It's impossible to tell. So it must have been pretty hard. How did he break off two tools? Well, it, w- it would have been that dense, though. I mean, it would have had to have been incredibly dense, even as a soft wood. Yeah. With that kind of age, so and it sounds like from the size of it, they couldn't have necessarily determined. You know, it was that old, so the ring, the inner rings, would have had to be had to be incredibly dense. Sure. There's yeah. an interesting. You'll hear me from time to time bring up Terry Pratchett. There's an interesting thing thing he threw into one of his books called. Uh, the evolution of counting pines. This grove of trees essentially decided that the reason people cut down trees was to find out how old they were. So they evolved in such a way that they put their ages on their bark, which caused them to be cut down much faster, so that they could, so that their numbers could be used in the house address industry. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Uh, that's terrible. <laughs> it is, but you know he's a satirist and he's very good at poking fun at. Things that real people actually do. So. All right. So, who's who's the atlatl story? Whose is this? That's mine. Yeah. At, I, I this atlatl yeah. is a lot older than the tree. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ten thousand years old. Uh huh. They found uh, Boulder, Colorado. Researchers say they have found a ten thousand year old hunting weapon in melting ice near Yellowstone National Park. Um, it was a javelin from an atlatl, which. For those of you who are familiar with the atlatl props, for those of you who are not, what it is is a stick that a javelin can socket into the end of, which is designed to extend your arm and thereby give you a longer throwing arm and cause the javelin to fly faster and harder. Um, the javelin had been in the ice so long that essentially it had gone from being a straight a straight javelin to having a really, really sharp, sharp bend and curve in it from the way that the ice had changed it. Yeah. This is pretty neat. Um, uh, you know, um, Steve Novella on uh, Skeptic's Guide to the Galaxy talked about this. And one of the things that I am with Steve on this, you know, to me, this this would have been just another stick. But um, the researcher right. noticed the notches on the ends of the stick, and, and he re- that's how he was able to recognize it for what it was. What's also interesting is that they, they make a, a very um, explicit distinction between permanent ice you know, um, and stable ice as opposed to glaciers, which are moving. And so if this had been under a glacier, it would have been crushed. But because it was under permanent ice, that's melting because of global warming. 
um, we, that's how we, we were able to find it. It was made of birch, and it still has personal markings on it for the hunter. That is amazing. Um, I have used... I, I've thrown like two javelins out of an atlatl. I'd love to have one again. I borrowed, I had, I, I mentioned the anthropology teacher before. He brought in two different types of atlatls, two different makes of atlatls, modern made ones, and took us out to a high school football field, not during a practice. And we got to see how far we could throw them to determine whether we thought you could take down a mammoth. With them. And I got, you know, like 60 to 70 yards out of that and fast. Yeah, so, what they said, how far did they say that? I mean, they, they said that these things can fly up to 100 miles an hour. I believe that. Uh, an arrow coming out of a bow will fly close to 200. Yeah, well, I mean, th- this is the in-between. Th- this is, you know, the, the difference between a guy with a spear, you know, and, and the atlatl, you know, there's the mm-hmm. next step, and then the bows. There, there might be another well, yeah, step it's all different ways of storing force, but the bow is, is it's a... it's a weapon that's still useful to this day, so... Well, it's the superior weapon. Nobody's going to argue that. Unless you are. No, I'm not going to argue. Okay. Atlatls are still neat. Oh, no, they're neat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this next story, Ian, I, I, I was surprised that this was you and not Mac. Well, that, I'd seen it a bit before, and then, of course, he had put in the Atlatl one on, and so I was like, oh, it's a perfect connection. Yeah, absolutely. It's the same kind of thing. And, it, yeah, it's definitely more his style of story that he would normally paste. But it still has some interesting stuff in it. it talks. Um, but it still has, that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the basic thing is that um, in, you know, rebuilding um, where the World Trade Center is, they've uncovered some pretty um, interesting stuff that they kind of knew was there. Because apparently what they were saying is, is one-third of Upper Manhattan is um, man-made. And basically, I, I guess they just um, plowed dirt over all the docks and stuff that were there beforehand, including wrecked ships. Yeah, they, and so, they dumped the trash and yeah. made it into land. Yeah. We're still doing that now. I, I read an interesting book not long ago about something similar, and apparently this took place in Toronto in a similar fashion. So, But in this case, we've uncovered a, um, like, what was it, 200-year-old ship that right. they had just covered over. And it was preserved it, under there, right? What? It was, it was, it was pretty well preserved as it, as it was, yeah. but now that it's uncovered. Under the dirt. Right, but now that it's uncovered, um, the, they have a, a limited amount of time to actually do their, re- um, do their research mm-hmm. on it. It was preserved in the landfills because the organisms that normally break down wood and get in there. But yeah, because it's too packed, too tightly. <laughs> yeah, so anthropologists or archaeologists who um, ha- have a limited amount of time now to, to get in there and study it. By the way, these last few articles, we're using the logical fallacy appeal to that's neat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so, you know, looking at that, you have to wonder, you know, places like Manhattan, what other stuff are buried under there? Well, that would be pretty neat. I mean, to go through those garbage. I mean, we look at ancient societies and we learn most by going through their garbage. So imagine what we can even learn about things that we have maybe forgotten or knowledge that was lost by going through our own garbage like that. Right. From Mm -hmm. that period. That's pretty cool. All right. You want me to tell you why the moon is, or why Mars is not going to be as big as the moon? I'd like to know about that because I thought, you know, hey, I thought those were of a size. <laughs> well, this uh, this story, if you look at stated um, 2005, okay, but, but here's it keeps here's the reason. Up. Yeah, the I the reason that this came to my attention is because I got a PowerPoint, and I'm actually I'll put this up on a, um uh in the show notes. I'll put the PowerPoint in the show notes. But the PowerPoint, you know, went through, and you know, the PowerPoint is good. I mean, that whoever put this hoax together really knew what they you know what they were doing because they talked about Mars's gravity and Jupiter's gravity and how everything's in this perfect alignment. 
for Mars to be the closest that it's ever been to us and all this. And it's going to happen this year, too. And they had updated it in 2010, I'm pretty sure. Um, and so that's why this came to my attention, because this goes around every year. Yeah. And so, so the article here is from 2005. There's a, um, well, and there's, uh, by Dr., uh, he's not a doctor, Fraser Crane and Pamela Gay do the, um, do a podcast. Uh, uh, did you say Fraser Crane? Uh, I, I, Fraser Kane. Fraser Kane. Uh, you, you said I did, Fraser you're right. Kane. I, I'm like, yeah, no, no, you're that's right. That's on TV. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Well, we used to be on TV. And, and it was Kelsey Grammer. And I don't think he's a doctor. I think it's just Fraser Kane and, and Dr. Pamela Gay. Um, and they do it. They have a and now the, their name of their podcast, Astronomy Cast, and uh, and they're fabulous too. Um, that that's a great podcast. So he put this up in 2005 on uh, Universe Today, and but this he was talking about when Mars was closest to us in 2003. So so it's certainly not this year. It was 2003 when it was closest to us, and it certainly did not appear as big as the moon. In fact, if it did, its gravity wouldn't create chaos, uh, um, you know, and with our tides. and, and uh, Yeah, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> yeah, we'd be in big trouble. So it's not going to happen, but it goes around every year, and it's been doing it for, for years now. I bet, I, you know, the hoax probably started back in 2003. Well, if it had been that close, we'd have had a problem with those pesky Martian walkers, and we'd have had to give them a, the, the cold virus again. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, you didn't think I was going to get War of the Worlds in there tonight. <laughs> well, we never know what you'll get in there. You couldn't wor- I'm positive if you wanted to, you could work about anything you felt like into the podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. All right. You guys want to talk about uh, global warming? We do want to talk about global warming. Yeah, here's the thing. I know that, you know, a lot of it, it's easy to, to just want to run away from this subject because it is it's it's a hot button. So but here's the thing is that I have reports from NASA and in the in last year in 2009, it was the second hottest year on record. 1980 was the hottest. Um, it looks like uh, 2005 is the fourth warmest. And I thought 2004 was was uh, on the records, too. So we, well, they we said have, we just finished the hottest decade on exactly. We're, we're, and it depends on how you decide the decade. Either either 2010 is the end of the decade or 2009, depending on where you right. where you want but to draw still, the line. That means it doesn't matter. A lot matter. of the 2000 years had to have been high. They were they were incredibly high. So the so so far the first part of this year is is a very strong indicator that 2010 is going to be the hottest year on record. It's going to beat ni- um, 1980 for for that for that title. So we have all these lining up. We have the um, 2009 will be the third. 2005 will be the fourth. And now we're going. And now we're going to have 2010, which is going to be the the warmest. All in 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 a you know in a very close proximity of time. And this is you know the, it's interesting because this data is very clear. Um, and so we we have NASA coming out, and they've also put out another report. You know, talking about uh, all the glaciers melting. You know, because dispelling the rumor that you know that there are some that are growing. That according to to NASA's uh, satellite data, they're they're all shrinking. And I didn't put that article in here, but um, that's also on um, um, sciencenews.com. You can yeah, find I've got evidence of global warming here in the office tonight. There you go. So okay. So this is pretty clear. And it's you hot. Know, you talk to people all the time. They're like, no, the, it, we're actually in a cool. You know, we've been in a ten-year cooling cycle, and you know they want to tell you all this. But and this this data is backed up. At least the 2009 one was backed up by another. Um, uh, 
another facility that was watching this out of uh, out of England. So the the data was verified by two different sources, and they and they had slightly different methodology, but they still came up with the same conclusion. You know, despite the fact that we had some really brutal spring snowstorms, our winter was unseasonably warm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, my wife and I have been observing that the migratory patterns of the birds that usually visit us during the summertime, we're getting unusual birds and their their migratory patterns are probably changing because <coughs> where they normally go has become un, uh, unhealthy. Well, or, or you know, they're, they're, they're not having to travel as far. You know, there's, there's, there's short distance migratory birds and long distance migratory birds and global warming has different effects on, on, um, on them. And I think that, um, Ones that go shorter distances probably adapt better. I think I read a re- uh, um, read a report on that 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 it's the long distance birds that uh, aren't adapting as easy because they have to decide when to go, and it isn't as much about weather. All I know is that landlocked Colorado should not necessarily be a popular destination among pelicans. We I've seen pelicans before though. Yeah, but we've got a lot of them this year. Really? Uh, we also saw something we had never seen before and had to actually identify by going picture by picture through uh, bird guides. We saw a relative of the pelicans called the Anhinga, and apparently they're not real common around here. But you know, Sam initially thought that she saw a bald eagle land in the middle of a lake because of the coloration, and it took her a while to you know looking to find out that no, this was probably this Anhinga. So, All right. just some unusual birds showing. Yeah, well. And this is not really the season for Canadian geese, and yet we've got flocks after flocks coming in here. Uh, well, I don't know. It's, it's hard to... Oh. I got my, my... Pardon me. What was that? I was uh, I opened one of these links. I didn't realize these were all YouTube. Um, ah, okay. Yeah, I was looking at the food science stuff. I think we can move on now. Okay. Yeah. So, Ian, what do you got for me? Oh, into McDonald's now. Yes, well, indeed. Basically, what I have is a series of videos. The first two are trying to show how horrible McDonald's food is, and the third one is countering the second one primarily, but some of what he says also applies to the first one. The main reason I put these on there, you know, no matter what you think about McDonald's, you know, I know it's unhealthy for me, but I still eat it, um, is the fact that in the first two, both of them are poorly done experiment. Um... In the first one, which looked like it was the same guy that d- did the uh, um, movie um, Supersize Me, which, yeah. if you watch the movie itself... He does look a bit like that guy. The experiment in that movie itself was actually kind of poorly done, because he had no... Um, he didn't have a control group. Yeah, he had no control group. Uh, you know, he, he didn't go and say, okay, let's have someone else eat vegetables for every meal and be just as lazy as I'm being, see if they come out any healthier. No, no, yeah. I mean, the whole thing was one big antidote, and it was his experience, which is fine. You know, yeah, it, right. it, as long as you market it as that, but it wasn't marketed as that. It was marketed right. as, you know, as, the, you know, this is the norm, when really, you know, we have nothing to back that up. Certainly it affected him that way. Yeah. But, I mean, so... What we see there is the same kind of attitude I felt. He takes um, about a half dozen different burgers, well, sandwiches, because he has both a chicken sandwich and the fish sandwich, and puts them in these containers. He takes fries, dumps them in a container. Then he takes a burger from a local burger place, not a McDonald's, you know, a local one, puts that in a container, and the fries from that place, and puts that in the container. Well, then he lets them sit and see, watches them mold. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the burger from the local place and the fries from the local place both mold a little faster than the burgers from McDonald's, while the fries from McDonald's don't mold at all. 
he automatically makes an assumption that, oh, you know, look at what they must put in the fries. He doesn't think logically that, well, I wouldn't expect McDonald fries to mold very fast, if at all, because of how heavily salted they always Well, they're also flash frozen my before father. being prepared. Like, Whereas right. the steak fries yeah. that he's got in the experiment look to be probably fresh steak fries. Yeah. Right. You know, something cut out of an actual, not out of an actual potato, but cut out of a fresh potato and prepared right. fresh. Whereas the McDonald's stuff was flash frozen, which may kill a lot of the things that might naturally biodegrade. Right. Well, then, then you know, deep, deep fried and heavily salted. You're not going to get growth on something that's been through those that many processes. It doesn't necessarily mean anything nasty outside of the salt and the no, <laughs> oil no. to fry them has been added. I, I, I wonder, but he know, doesn't care about okay. that. Yeah, here's, here's he the was thing. so disgusted by the regular burger and fries that he automatically threw them away. Well, I wasn't expecting him to eat. Well, here's the thing. Right. This, this kind of stuff is, is total BS anyway. It's, it's anecdotal. Some, it's anecdotal. It's, it's well, the anecdotal. Here's, here's my we, thing. All we have is... All we have is captions telling us that the time has passed. Here's yeah. the thing, though. Well, then the next part is what I find interesting. Okay, he gets through the control group. Now, that got thrown out supposedly by accident. Then we watch as the McDonald's sandwiches basically get moldy at a fairly regular-looking rate. I saw nothing that suggested that what was going on with the sandwiches was anything different than what you'd see if you put any other food in a container like that and let it sit for two months. But he's acting like, oh, my God, look how horrible they've become. It's like, they, they don't food have mold to, yeah. gets nasty when you leave it out for two months in a container that has all that. Because you can see all the humidity in there. Yeah. Well, it's like that has to be a nasty place to store something. It's going to get nasty. I don't care what you put in there. They do that in the refrigerator. Okay, but here's, yeah. the, here's the thing. Guys. Much less in an it, un unrefrigerated glass jar. Right. I find it irritating that... They don't have to put. They, they always want to tell us that they're putting chemicals and stuff in in their meats and stuff like that. They don't have to. They have to put three ingredients in there: sugar, fat, and salt. And and for them to tell me and like you made the point that it's unhealthy. Well, is it any more unhealthy than the way that people cook for themselves at home? I don't right. think so. I think that this is total crap because I know when I cook at home, I like three things: I like salt, sugar, and fat. And when I cook. The, those are those are you know those things end yep. up in my food and so I don't think that people are eating any better at home than they do when they go out. People eat mm. these salads thinking, oh, I'm eating a salad. Yeah, but then you're gonna put a dressing on there that's got a zillion calories in it, and and, and you think because you're eating lettuce it's healthy, which isn't really mm. that healthy. It's mostly water. Hey, Brian, I know you know the answer to this. Um, what what preserves pemmican unrefrigerated, and how long can it last? Actually, I don't. I don't know what is pemmican. Pemmican is basically Indian beef. Jerky. Oh well, it's going to be salt. Hmm? It's going to be salt for the most part. And fat. Salt and fat. Salt sure. and fat, and it's mixed with fruits. So it's salt and fat and sugar, and it lasts unrefrigerated for long periods of time because it's got right. these ingredients in it. Well, and you take a and lot of the actually... moisture out of it too, so so that mm. you know you're not you're taking a lot of the um, ability for you know bacteria to grow when you remove right. the moisture. Yeah. And that's actually perfect even, going into the next video. Even regular beef jerky will mold after a certain period of time. Sure. Whereas the 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 beef jerky that my wife prepared, um, we bought just regular Walmart beef jerky, but we mixed it with dried fruit and with nuts, and it stayed perfectly preserved because of that mixture. Yeah, absolutely. Right, and in the in the next video that we have up there, the lady has a supposedly four-year-old um, hamburger from McDonald's and a thing of fries like four-year-old, and the burger itself is dried mm -hmm. and hard, and, you know, 
it's she's once more you know the, the same type of thing as the first one. She's using that as evidence of how horrible the McDonald's food is. You know, the, this is what they're feeding us. It can last four years if you dry it out. And you know, once more, the, the French fries she produces. Oh, look, they've been you know they're not molding after four years. I don't know. She's got then a SpongeBob, the SpongeBob lunchbox. <laughs> I, I don't think even bacteria will go into a SpongeBob lunchbox. <laughs> but no, this is another one of those things that's just. We're going on the lady's word that it's a four-year-old McDonald's hamburger, and she's going on someone else's word. She was and given it by this one place who told him how, who told her so how old it was. So it's purely anecdotal, and right. that burger could have been replaced many times. Right. You know, but I, still, then the next video is uh, got you know the most intelligent video of all. You have this guy looking like, well, yeah, okay, you know what beef jerky is? Same type of process. The food was dried out, and as we're talking, you have the sugar, you have the um, salt, you have the fat in there that also preserves it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, anyone that actually wants to go beyond trying to prove McDonald's some horrible food and look at the science of it is going to see, hey, look, <laughs> okay, there's a reason, and that's the, the first two videos. In neither one of them does anyone try and look and say, okay, what is going on here? They just are trying to say, hey, look, the food's doing this, so it must be horrible. They don't look into the science. They don't look into the reasoning. They don't look into what is actually going on. And so that kills what they're doing. There's no, you know, these experiments are inaccurate because they're not looking at the process at all. And that's why the third video was so great. You know, this guy came on and said, hey, listen, you're full of it. You know, you need to look at the science because what you're doing is not scientific. It is just an observation with no um, real research behind it. Yeah, I tend to agree. Now, given my choice between those flash frozen McDonald's fries and those fresh steak fries, I think I'd probably want to go with the fresh steak fries. But that's a personal. Yeah, I don't know. McDonald's right. fries are good. Yeah, I like beef fries myself. The, so. Yeah. The other reason I think that the uh, McDonald's fries don't mold as well as the steak fries, the steak fries have a, have a thicker surface, so they're not going to absorb quite as much oil. The thinner ones are going to be more. They're going to have more oil in them, right. and I probably going to have that the more flash crispy. freezing process of those fries probably crystallizes their structure a little bit. Well, and and probably because yeah. the texture changes. Well, so probably less bacteria. More than just the frying causes that. Sure, sure. But there's less starch, less, you know, less starchy material left over to, you know, to mold, unlike the steak fries. Right. So, but see, that's the thing. You know, you, doing an experiment like that, you have to be able to say, okay, what is causing this? You can't just make the assumption, oh, this stuff is happening and this is wrong to happen, so therefore there must be something nasty in the food. Well, yeah. I've also got to say on that second video with the lady with the four-year-old cheeseburger, two points. First of all, the cheese that's on there is the same processed stuff that millions of Americans buy as American cheese. And frankly, it biodegrades only because we kind of decided that it does. <laughs> it doesn't really. I mean, you can basically leave Velveeta out for, for months, and it's still Velveeta. It's definitely recognizable as Velveeta. The surface gets a little hard, but you cut into it, and it's still fine. So you're saying it's like right. a biodegradable plastic. Pretty much. Yeah, okay. Um, a second point on her, though, is that Where's the money on this? You know, you talked about your, you talked in the past about your, your, what you, what you put a video through or an article through your, uh, your trust matrix, essentially. Oh yeah. My, my, uh, confirmation. Yeah. Oh yeah. Confirmation exactly. bias matrix. Yeah. Well, and one of my questions is always, where's the money going? And I got to yeah. tell you, honestly, this lady in the second video, I, I kind of feel like it's her career to have a four-year-old McDonald's cheeseburger. Yeah. That's her, that's her thing. 
Adam Walsh's or uh, not John, not Adam Walsh, but John Walsh's career is the father of Walsh. Okay, this terrible thing has happened to him. That's his whole. That's his whole career, and people trust him because this terrible thing has happened to him. You know, there's so many different examples of this. It's what is this person's career? I'm watching Big Brother right now, and one of the guys on there, his career is pretty much being apparently a Judaism advocate, and his being a podiatrist is his side job. Oh, okay. man. Okay. Um, where's the money? And with this lady, right. to, you know, to repeat my point, with this money, with this lady, the money is in having that four-year-old McDonald's cheeseburger. So it benefits her interest to have a four-year-old McDonald's cheeseburger, no matter what the actual age of that cheeseburger might be. Right. Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay, my rant. All right. Okay, that's good. You know, my, but my point, I still come back to, are people really cooking for themselves on average better? Probably not, you mm. know? I mean, no. I mean, and, and here's the thing is that I, I, I think I like the food I cook at home better, but I would be an idiot to say that it's healthier for me. You know, because I, I know what I like. I know what I like to cook. I know what I like to eat, and right. and I don't think. Well, it's... you cook some very good food, and yeah. I I think that you cook things that are relatively healthy. But no, you don't cook the healthiest stuff that's out there. Absolutely not, because I know what and I like. You definitely don't take care of yourself as far as food goes, as well as crows do. Well, you're right. You know, because because crows have this innate ability <laughs> to use vending machines. Uh huh. That I Not didn't an realize. Ability, a learned ability. A learned ability. Okay. A learned ability. Absolutely uh, learned. Actually, that's true. It's absolutely a learned ability. Go ahead. Okay. The next. My wife found this. My wife found finds all kinds of really cool stuff. She showed me this video, and I was uh, I was absolutely jaw agape watching this video. Um. Basically, this guy. It, the the video was from this site called TED, which I gotta watch bunches more stuff from because it's just we put videos to its yeah. date. We put but, videos on from TED. We actually we've had quite a few videos on from TED. Anyway, yeah. this guy did an he 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 shows an experiment first of all with a crow, a female crow in a lab where she's given a problem of a a meat a meat patty or a treat in this glass tube that she can't get her head into. They gave her a tool because these these crows are known to use sticks in the wild as tools. So she takes this metal piece of piece of metal and she sticks it down in there to try to get the meat. And she can't reach the meat with. So she takes the metal piece away. You can't see what she's doing for a second, but she comes back with it bent into a hook, hooks the meat out of the container and eats it. And they learned something. They weren't expecting her to do that. There was no basis to think that any of these crows could ever imagine creating a tool only using an incidental tool. So something must have triggered in that shape that said, okay, well, I need that shape to get this. How can I make that shape? Well, if I bend this, maybe I can make that shape. So this guy went on, and he created a vending machine in his backyard. And his experiment was first to leave coins and peanuts on the surface of the vending machine so the crows could get, get the peanuts. They'd brush aside the coins, they'd get the peanuts, and they'd fly away happy. The second one was to put coins that you could... He took away the peanuts, but he could put coins that they could bump into the slot and get a peanut. And the crows figured out how to bump the coin into the slot and get a peanut. Then he took the coins away from the slot. And so he had this one crow that sat there for, you know, some period of time and finally figured out, well, you know, there's all these coins on the ground. What if I pick one of these up, drop the coin in the slot, got a peanut? Five days later, every crow in the neighborhood was, was robbing this vending machine blind, picking up the coins off the ground, putting them in the slots and leave them with the peanuts. Every crow in the neighborhood, which means not only can they reason, can they figure out the consequences of an action, they can learn and they can teach it to everybody around them. So that means they're, they're passing on information socially. 
Yeah, I, I thought that was real. I really liked actually um, him showing the um, the crows in Japan that uh, would take the the peanuts that they couldn't oh, open yeah. or the, the nuts and, that they couldn't open. Cracking the peanuts in traffic. That's yeah, they they throw they put them in traffic and then they actually wait for the light to turn red and then they and go out and eat the peanuts. Thank you for reminding me about yeah. that because I'd actually forgotten about that part of the video. They would they will drop nuts into the tra into the traffic. They'll let cars run over the nuts. They'll wait for the walk light and then they will run out in the street, grab their treat. And go back before the walk light goes. And now, very adaptable. Very adaptable. Extremely. My wife has seen that the squirrels in downtown Denver have learned to use the walk lights because the ones that didn't learn to use the walk lights and walk when the people were walking didn't make more squirrels. Yeah, hmm? I, I, the crows are far smarter than the squirrels, though. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and they're it, far more adaptable. Yeah. What was crows also interesting. thrive in an urban environment. He talked about how within, like, what would you say, five kilometers of this one intersection where they started doing it, all the crows are doing this, and it's and it's uh -huh. spreading, and they're exactly. learning, and they're teaching their kids, you know, so pretty neat. It's extremely neat. And he was talking about, you know, he says, I don't necessarily think that I can train crows to bring coins to my vending machine from all over the world. I don't think my return on investment is going to be good on that, but it's an interesting thing to learn in any case. Well, but his his ultimate goal is how can, can we train these crows to do other things like pick up trash, stuff like that, which uh -huh. I thought is a pretty neat idea. What else can we What else can we train these crows to do? Clearly, we can train them. So how do we train them to do a purpose that will help us out? The thing about crows is they've got to be trained in something that they actually want to learn. Well, that's true. Because crows are also known for being incredibly stubborn and really, really vindictive. <laughs> so yeah. um, I went on after finding this video, and I went kind of looking for other stuff. My wife had mentioned this Alex, this African gray parrot, and I watched these videos of Alex, and it was just absolutely fascinating to watch this parrot. One of the tests she put him through, you know, because she's demonstrated his ability to determine when he's holding something, well, what well, it's made out of, yeah. and to tell her what it's made out of, to tell her what color it is, to count... And one of the tests she put was she had a plate full of green and blue cars, toy cars, and green and blue blocks. And she asked him how many green blocks there were. And he looked at the, the tray, probably about 30 seconds, then he said two, Yeah, which was correct. It, it, this is, you know, the, what's really neat about this is her training process, how she trains um, the, the bird to actually do this stuff. Unfortunately, Alex came to an, uh, an early demise. Very untimely end. Yeah. It's it's not uncommon for for birds of all types to suffer just unexplainable heart failure. Right, and so now she's got a re, uh, a replacement, Griffin. Who right. I don't think and talks as well. I don't think he talks as well, but he seems to have the same ability to reason, and he's actually seems to be learning faster than Alex. So it's not a fluke. Really, is he is he learning faster than Alex? I didn't remember. At a younger age, that. he's already almost where Alex was at at the time that Alex passed away. That's, that's really interesting. And they said that Alex was an off-the-shelf bird. They went to the store, they bought bought an African Grey. No, I mean, exactly. they didn't look for anything special, and uh, they were able to teach you know, him this. He doesn't have a super genius enlarged cranium. He's just an African Grey, which is a smart bird in the first place. Well, but... yeah. Right. Some of that learning, though, is it the bird being able to pick it up faster, or is it them understanding better how to teach? Well, that's probably exactly what it is. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But, you know, you can tell the difference. I want I watched a video they put together of Alex the African Grey versus Einstein the African Grey. Einstein is considered to be, I guess, one of the best talkers in the African Grey world. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. when you watch Einstein and his and his person, Einstein is clearly following cues. She says cue words and he responds to cue words, which means that he's recognizing what she's saying, but he's responding to cues with 
sounds. It doesn't mean that he necessarily knows what the sounds mean. Whereas with Alex, there does seem to be the ability to reason. It was two different training processes, too. Very much so. Yeah, but... I, I mean, the girl who's got Einstein is training for a showbird. Yeah, she works in a zoo. Yeah, and she wants a kid, She wants a bird who's going to do cute things and entertain children. And Einstein is that bird. He makes cute noises. He 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 acts with. She gives the cues. He goes with the act, and the children love it, which is what Einstein is for. Yeah, but here's the thing, and and this is something you pointed out to me that I had never noticed before is that Alex seems stressed, and I thought that Griffin showed some of the same kind of thing. I I did notice that too. Both of them are what. Uh, any bird people out there, if I say they're pluckers, you'll know what I'm talking about. Right. They pluck their own feathers out of stress or unhappiness, or in some cases, even just boredom. But they'll pluck their own feathers off. And it's, you know, it's a similar behavior to when a human's cutting or hurting themselves. It's, it's basically you're hurting yourself as a, as a way to feel something. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting, and I thought it's interesting that I, I, we saw that on both Einstein and Griffin. Not quite as much on Griffin. And, no. Uh, I mean, Alex. Einstein had, didn't show any of those kinds of stuff. Einstein uh, was a very well-loved bird. Yeah. Well, He's and an I, extremely well-loved bird. Yeah, but here's the thing. Is that I wouldn't say that Alex and Griffin are any less loved, but I think that the, they have different—something about the environments must be different. And one thing is we know that Alex and Griffin are left um, at the laboratory at night, and I wonder if there's other birds— for uh, Einstein to socialize with so that he's not alone. Or he so may much. also live with his trainer. Well, and that might make a difference too. And that'd make a huge difference because African greys are super I they're they're golden retrievers of the bird world. Yeah. They love their people to death. Mm-hmm. They love one person so much that I mean there's there's a story about an African grey alarming a family and waking up a family because he smelled smoke. There are stories about African greys saving their owners when their owners aren't aware of something and, you know, stuff like this. Yeah, but I, I did think that was interesting, and I thought it was interesting that, well, Einstein, or Alex, as he, as he got older, as a young bird, he was really, really bad. And as and you see shots with him when he's older, and um, it's only his uh, his tail and stuff that, that seem to be look like he's right. plucked. The same places where, um, where Griffin looks like he's pluffing, plucking. It, at the younger ages, he was shredding his chest feathers and plucking them. And as he got older, yeah, probably just the tail feathers. Yeah. So, but so. but it, I I did think that the the contrast with Einstein was interesting. Definitely. Now I've got an interesting little little bird anecdote that we observed today. Um, I've got two red rump parrots and two budgies, budgerigar parakeets, in the house here. And you know, budgerigar parakeets are your common fifteen dollar off the shelf. Buy them in the pet store. Green parakeets, although one one of ours is blue, the other one's a mauve color. But you know, they're your they're your off the shelf parakeet. They're the most common bird in the world. Um, Are they really? I didn't know that. Maybe not the most common bird in the world, but they're a really really common pet. Okay, all right. Um, we we had asked for some advice from a bird store owner who had some really really well trained larger birds on how to get them to interact a little bit more with their toys because we are you know we're trying to make our budgies. We're trying to get them to do more interesting things so that they're having more fun. And I've already observed that our male budgie plays games with my wife. She doesn't necessarily see it as the game because she's the object, but he will he will hop on her finger every time she puts her hand in the cage. And when she tries to bring her hand out of the cage, 
he hops off her finger. But the second she puts her hand back in the cage, he flies over there to start the process again. If he didn't want to be on her finger, if he didn't want to interact, he just wouldn't hop up on her finger. But no, his form of interaction is to basically mess with her for about five minutes at a time until he gets tired of it and rides out. No, that's funny. Um, What we observed today, though, is he said, put the toy where the bird can't want. So we put the toy, we hung it where it was kind of interfering with one of their perches. And we hung the toy so it couldn't be moved. And so I'm sitting here working. My wife comes in, says, look at this. I turn around and she is pointing out the fact that they couldn't move the toy. So they moved the perch. (laughs) All right. All right. (laughs) We got to move on here. Facts don't really matter. Ian's queuing us. Brian's queuing us. I'm queuing you. All right, Ian, tell me why facts don't really matter. Well, actually, um, regretfully, this isn't that big of a surprise to me. When I read the article, I'm like, yeah, actually, that's exactly what I see all the time. And it definitely, you know, fits with the human psyche. But the basic idea is even, you know, a a podcast like us where we're really trying to get the facts out there, if someone listens to it and they've already decided for themselves the way things are, whatever, you know, we can present any amount of facts and they will basically blow it over and keep believing what they want to believe. Well, and they were they uh, were looking specifically at liberals and conservatives too, and said that. Well, yeah, they, they said, broke it down into the, that and ca- kind of got more into the mentality between the two of them. Um, but the general idea was that basically people don't actually want to change what they believe in, and the, what they said in the article were conservatives were more likely just kind of go into denial of it, and you know, and they used global warming as a primary example. We just did a piece on global warming here, and According to this article, um, you could present that fact to these conservatives and they will just deny it. They'll say, oh, well, you know, there's something wrong with the information that's not accurate. You know, they'll find any reason to just say, no, you know, we're not following that because we don't like it. You know, and I'd actually go further to say it's more of a fundamentalist idea. You know, I, I think the fundamentalists are the ones that are more likely be conservative, which is where I think that comes well, from. I, I, well, I they are I, I, they I, are used to believing things despite the facts. Well, but right. okay, but so here's the thing: so, so we're liberals. So we're so we're liberals, and liberals are just as guilty. It, um, right. In fact, I I was surprised in the article that if I was going to use um, a, a thing um, for liberals, I, I would. What was their example? in here that liberals kind of uh just denied um, I, I would have gone with remember. organic foods that that would have been my, because that that's kind of the the liberal no, no matter the evidence that shows that you know regular produced foods versus organic foods that you know the right the 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 chemical levels are the same and really that you know the the taste is about the same between the two of them I mean, certainly, yep. the fresher you pick it, the the, uh, the more tasty it is. Right, Penn and Teller did a yeah. whole thing on that. Yeah. And they showed that you know these people they determined about how great organic foods are couldn't tell the difference, but still, in the aftermath, they they were still saying, "Oh, I'll still buy organic." Mm-hmm. And right, it, exactly. it is the same type of thing, but um, I forget what the differences were. It, it says in the article that the the thinking there was a difference in the way the thinking's done. But their the conclusion was that either either way that you did it, it was no better. Right. You know, well, I'll still buy organic food because I prefer to support the the small independent farmer that ships millions of apples to Walmart rather than the large conglomerate that sends sends millions of apples to Walmart. <laughs> I, I respect that decision. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know what? There, there's something to be said that the fresher you can pick it, the better it's going to taste, whether it's organic or not. It doesn't matter. Right. The fresher. Yes, but you on can the other get. hand, I have met, I have looked in many stores, and I have yet to find an inorganic apple. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all inorganic. Every one of them have been have been genetically altered by humans. You well, know, yes, the, but they are organic. Here's the thing is like organic banana. There's an oxymoron. <laughs> go to Hobby Lobby and you can find yourself some inorganic apples. Well, that's true. Well, that, that there you true. go. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unless they're made of wood, in which case they're still organic. I laugh. Not edible. I, I laugh organic. when I see the bananas in the store that say organic. It's like, it's just inconceivable. <laughs> it's absolutely well, ridiculous. Clones. Well, they're well. They're all clones. Yep. We, we, you take Caesar in those; they cannot grow. We made the banana the way that it is. That's why it's the atheist yep. nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, the, the basic idea of the article I read, and nothing at all in it surprised me. I'm saying, you know, it, it, it's you know one of those things that just here's the truth. Right. You know, you face know, it. But here's the just, thing: is despite that, looking at this article, though, Ian, I still think uh-huh. the facts matter. So do I. But I don't. I, I do agree with the basic idea that there's a, a huge um, segment of the population that doesn't want to hear the facts. They don't care. You know what? They will ignore it all. Here's the thing, though, is that I, I think it's good to, to, to do this because this points out confirmation bias. That's, oh, yes. I mean, really, that's what this article is about. But And I guarantee you that every one of us is guilty of this. We try, oh, yes. and, and we try harder than most, and I still think we're guilty. Yeah, I agree. It's a hard thing to get around. You know, there's a level of you get it down in your mind that things are supposed to be a certain way, and it's hard to convince anyone otherwise. Right. And exactly. I, yeah. I don't know a single person who I would say is not guilty of that. I got to tell you, though, like, t- I mean, I today, when Mac first told me, like, about, about the bird, about Alex being distressed, yeah, I couldn't remember that. I've seen a lot of things about Alex, and, and, and I didn't buy it, and I argued with him. I'm like, that, that's, that's not right. And then I went, I had to go look at, you know, when I watched the videos, I'm like, wow, he really has a good point. And, and I thought, well, maybe it was just that one video. So I started watching more videos, and it's like, no, every single one He of them. says a lot of times in there, while she's working on them, he says, I want to go back. Yeah. And yep. he's talking about going back into his cage. At one point, he tells her he wants water, and he doesn't want water, and she identifies. She says, you wanted water just to break just to break what we're doing, didn't you? You sneaky bird. Yeah. But, and, I mean, it uh-huh. goes, but, but my point is, is that, you know, I have to watch, I have to watch myself on this, you know, that, that, you know, that my preconceived opinion doesn't affect what I believe in the end once, once I see the truth. Right. So, I mean, and it, it's, it is so tough. You know, and and I'll bet this researcher that's investigating is guilt is guilty as anybody. That's why the scientific method is so important. Mm-hmm. Right. And particularly the peer review process, if it's done properly, will weed a lot of this stuff out. Well, yeah. The fact that she's able to perform the same experiment with a different bird of different lineage, you know, same species, but not not related to Alex. Not like there's some super super genius gene running through this one strand of. Uh, of African greys, she's able to perform the same experiment with an unrelated bird means that this intelligence is native to the African grey. And if we can find out how to communicate with the African grey, then we can understand better 
mm. how they actually think, and they'll understand okay. how we actually. Think. I, I was just and talking about the, the plucking. That 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 was what I was talking about. I had to bring up the bird. And again, that's a big I? part to the scientific method. Is you know your experiments have to be repeatable. You right. know, someone else has to be able to take the same stuff and do it again in order for it to be accurate. For, yeah. In order for it to work. Exactly. If only one yeah. person can do it, then it could be a flu. It, you know, you don't know what happened. But when you can repeat the same experiment over and over again and get the same result, that's what tells you, okay, we're headed in the right direction. We have something. And, that's and the, yeah. if there's something with her with her methods that is causing stress in the birds, altering the methods, you may still be able to bring out the same level of intelligence or even more intelligence and less stress in the birds. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that, that's a really good point, actually, that, you know, that adjust the methods. But it, it, here's the thing about, you know, that that's an interesting one because nobody else has recreated her data. She's the only one. Now, she's got a second bird that she's doing with, but I don't think that there's anybody else who has taken her methods and and reproduced it, which I think is necessary um, in that situation. Somebody sure. else has to take another— Or an, tried their own methods and ac- accomplished something similar. Well, and that's fine, too. Yeah, and that, that would be fine, too. But, um, you know, you've got these birds. African greys, African gray parrots can live for generally 50 years plus. Um, there are other larger birds, the macaw family, that live 100 years plus. Right. And, you know, you've got some of these birds that are repeating sounds that they've heard in the past century. And... We got them back on birds. I know, I know. I shouldn't have brought up the birds. It's my fault. It's my fault. Hey, don't make me uncover. Don't make me uncover these guys because I will do it. I will throw (laughs) down on you. I think really they need to look at doing the same kind of research with land tortoises because they live like 150 years. So let's really choose an animal that you know that we can study for a long period of time. Or clams. I, making them talk is going to be the difficult part, but I think it can be done. You know, how, how old is that clam? Land tortoises go. Their motivations are really really simple, <laughs> and their motivations don't have anything to do with pleasing us. Their motivations are. You know, find stuff that's too slow to get away to eat and find something that's too slow to get away to mate. And that's pretty much, that's the land tortoise's life. <laughs> so, so we got to do the clams. They live even longer, Wait, right? are you saying that, that their motivations are eat and mate? Yes, I am. Am I, am I a land tortoise? Actually, you know, they're really not that different from us after all, are they? <laughs> but, you know, for I, I've talked, I, I had, for a number of years, I had a couple of iguanas. And I saw definitely a certain ability to figure out things, things that they wanted to do. Um, I had a female iguana that was watching this one area and kept watching that area until the day we left the curtain down. Mm -hmm. And the second we turned our back, she was up the curtain and on top of the cabinet. (laughs) She had been watching for that one opportunity. We had a male male iguana that was so, um, and unfortunately this is what killed it, but he was so... Uh, obsessed with eating cat food. Bad for iguanas. Oh, Do not no, feed it. Oh, yeah, no, that's not a good... Um, but he was so obsessed with eating cat food that we'd watch him pull these incredibly clever maneuvers around the house thinking that he could not be seen by us. He <laughs> like, behind the shelf, under the TV, underneath the couch, and then, you know, be intercepted by my wife who'd put him back on his cage. He'd be like, oh, that didn't work. <laughs> well, more and more, it seems like, you know, we are learning that animals in general are far more intelligent than we think. You know, there's studies being done on octopi and quids regarding their intelligence because you know, it looks yeah. like they're very intelligent. Creatures. Octopi yeah. are problem solvers on an incredible level. Didn't we recently yeah. talk about whales, too? I mean, the whale research with the, with the intelligence of whales, um, you know, is pretty incredible because, you know, the whales and dolphins are, are pretty close to 
um, and we're seeing uh, dolphins. We um, there was a thing a little while ago that sh- was showing that dolphins actually um, do have wars to some extent. They, they well, not wars, but they do kill each other over. We're not quite sure what. But, you know, they fight to the death. Sure. You know, they'll beat up younger dolphins to, for territory or something like that. We don't know the exact reasoning, but language barrier. You know, they, they, for all we know, you know, and it gets quite violent, you know, and we well, often talk about how humans are the only ones that can do that. And we keep saying, no, actually, a lot of these things that we were trying to claim are only um, shown in humans are out there in other animals. So, you know, there's definitely connections between intelligence and certain actions we perform, and we see that more and more. We've as got we actually learn. tool using primates. We have tool using yep. birds. Our, our our red rump parents have successfully trained us to perform simple tasks like feed them. Let's not forget bonobos. They <laughs> like to have sex. Yep. It's, it's, you know, talking about dolphins, there's a famous cartoon out there by Gary Larson, Farside. All right, guys. It's a famous actually, cartoon. Let's wrap this up. Okay. <laughs> this cartoon, though, you see these dolphin researchers, and they're talking about how the dolphins are making these nonsense noises, and they've got all these noises written on the board, and they're, like, phonetically written Spanish. And the, do- the researcher saying, he's making another one of those habla espanol noises. <laughs> uh, all right. I think, are we about done here? I think we are. All right. I just want, I did want to mention that um, uh, Ian and I were, the, uh, were, were guests on uh, the Rational Alchemy podcast. And um, so I'll be uh, putting uh, the Rational Alchemy podcast into the feed here. Um, uh, probably here in a couple of days. So we'll, um, we'll I, be... I put a link um, to that podcast itself up on our Facebook wall about a week Great. ago. Okay, good. So anyone that checks out our Facebook group can find the link to it there. Yeah, so so that will be coming into the feed. If you want to go to the Facebook link and get that, that's great. Um, that was a lot of fun. We had a good time with Brian Walsh. Um, we we yep. did the podcast panel, which that was in the feed not too, too long ago. Oh, and I, I got some feedback from um, uh, Eric Robbins. You know, we've been messing with the site, and he says that every time we put out a new podcast, um, it, it, um, his, uh, he's using Juice. It tries to re-download everything. I think that's probably because I've been messing with uh, the files and everything so much on the uh, on the site. So if that's happening to anybody else, I'm sorry. We're not gonna. We're, I, I think I finally got that all worked out. So we're not gonna be doing that anymore. So the feed shouldn't be changing. So uh, hopefully, when I put out this next podcast, it won't be a problem. Just so. tell them it's a director's cut. Yep. <laughs> all right. That sounds like that about does it for lucky number thirteen. All right. Anything else? I think, I think we're, we're done good. on this one. I think we've had a good we've had a good time on this podcast. All too. right. We had a lot of fun. Yep. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. For more information about the Amateur Skeptics, go to amateurskeptics.com. To send us feedback, suggestions, or big flaming insults, feel free to contact us at WTF at amateurskeptics.com. Other contact information can be found on our website. Music for this podcast was provided by OMG. For more information about OMG, go to their website at myspace.com forward slash OMGHQ. The Amateur Skeptics Podcast is released under a Creative Commons share alike, no derivatives, 3.0 license. We'd love to have you share our work with other people. Please do not edit or change the file.